0: Too much sun. My voice sounds okay, though. <laughs> it does feel deeper to me. though. Elliot, I want to open up with a true or false question. So far, all the games in the playoffs have been excellent.
1: True or false?
0: True. It's been really good, man. It's been great. Early, early, a couple
1: of days, but it's been really good. You know, watching the start of that Florida-Tampa game, oh. you know, Vegas was a little subdued because there were no goals. It was still a great luck. And plus, I love everything Vegas does to put on the show. Mm-hmm. But watching those fans in Florida going bananas during that game, I sat there and said, I am so jealous. What are the two things that made me jealous this weekend? Watching Mike Altieri, the longtime media leader of the Los Angeles Kings. Seeing that he had two holes in one during a golf round on Saturday, that made me really jealous. Hmm. And then seeing all those fans at the Florida Tampa Bay game, and it stinks that for two great series, like that are going to be Toronto and Montreal and Edmonton and Winnipeg, that we won't get that. It stinks. I'm jealous.
0: We'll talk about that with Eric Ingalls a little bit later on. Also on today's podcast, we should point out, since you mentioned the Winnipeg Jets, Paul Stastny of the Stastny hockey family, legendary name. uh, We'll be stopping by the podcast.
1: Of the Winnipeg Stastny's?
0: Of the Winnipeg Stastny's. Although he was born in Quebec City, I believe. Technically, Paul was. And his dad was, I think, the only player ever to suit up internationally for three countries. Czechoslovakia, Canada, and Slovakia. And I could go on about Peter Stastny all day long. And there's a lot of stuff about Peter Stastny uh, in the interview later on with Paul. So stay tuned for that Paul, by the things. way, was
1: born in Quebec City. You're right about that. Boom. I still got it, Fridge. I still got it. Still got still it. Still
0: got it. Okay, Elliot, we have to talk about Florida Tampa. We have to talk about Florida Tampa. We have to talk about Florida Tampa. So at some point in the third period of that game, I got a tweet from a guy by the name of Jeffrey Mullen who tweets at me, shades of the Norris Division, just much more talented? Remember those <laughs> Norris Division playoff games? Like, there wasn't the most talent in the NHL. Like, as you'll recall, you could make the playoffs in the Norris Division by getting 60 points, but the games were so intense oh, once you got to the postseason. And I think Mullen nails it on this one. Super talented, super violent, super rough. Everybody fully committed every single shift. That was Florida Tampa. 114 left. Braden Point with the second of the game, 5 4 final. Elliott.
1: Well, great game. But the thing that really did it to me was the pace. It was fast and it never seemed to slow down. Uh, that was what did it. The, the breathless speed and the breathless pace at the way the game was played. I don't know how you could keep that up for a full playoff series, never mind a run. That was a great game. It was the best game that I think a lot of us have seen this year. Yeah. It will be very difficult to beat that in terms of great games that we see for the rest of the playoffs, but you hope that we see it. It was fantastic hockey. And you know what, Jeff? To me, it was the crowd. Um, we've gotten used to watching sports without crowds. Yeah. That crowd really made it for me. And again, I'm jealous that <laughs> we're gonna do two rounds at least here in Canada and there's gonna be no fans in the building. You know, Toronto, Montreal should have a crowd. Yeah. Edmonton, Winnipeg should have a crowd. Look, I realize there are bigger things at play here. You know, don't come at me with those takes. I'm just saying that I appreciate even more what it's like to see a building. Where the people are going crazy because they're so entertained by a
0: game. Maybe the best example of that, and there were a few in this game, the Bobrovsky saves on Sorelli late in the third.
1: Chernak far
2: side, he's gonna carry it this time. Pass along the far wing for Stamkos, got away from him. Picked up though out in front. of hit, Troy, what a save! Bobrovsky on Sorelli, not once but twice. Oh, what a series of saves! Now back out in front of shot, Stamkos in a save made by Bobrovsky! And the puck taken by Forsling out to the neutral
0: zone point blank when he makes those saves like the place just erupts there were so many of those moments in this game like after every whistle crowd was going nuts after some of those like that Huberdo pass and I know there's a little bit of luck involved in it but when you're watching it in real time it looks like a clean pass the pass that Huberto makes on the, the Owen Tippett tippet
2: goal. Will roll it up the near boards, gave it away. Huberto Elaine, left side, walks into the circle. Huberto in front back and throws it in front, and they score! Owen Tippett, and the Panthers have a 4-3 lead. Huberto to Tippett, and the Panthers are up a goal. Owen Tippett has regained the lead for the Panthers.
3: Jan Rudo at the brutal giveaway. He had it. And just a lazy pass and it gets picked off by huberto hard net drive doesn't get the original shot but is able to control the puck and then he spins around on his forehand and finds tippet on the far side into an empty net and the panthers have a couple of quick goals here start the third
0: like everybody's biting that there's no way he's gonna pass it to Tippett, and he forces it over and the place comes unglued like i'm with you 100 like, percent every time ryan lomberg okay I don't know how many, how many minutes of your life you've spent thinking about Ryan Lomberg, but I bet you thought about him a lot tonight and everybody did every time he did something, the crowd got up Barkov's chances. The crowd got up like playoff. Sam Bennett showed up right every time Florida did something. The place was just charged. And it was great. And you're right. Like There was never a moment in this game, and we see this in all sports, but especially flow games, Like you can understand the first 10 minutes being chaotic and being insane, but then the game settles and there sort of becomes a pocket or a vacuum where the game kind of lives. That didn't happen on Sunday night. There was no settling. There was no vacuum. There was no pocket for this game to sit in. They just sprinted Mm -hmm. for three periods. And when Noel Achari made that save...
2: So the sequence begins down to our left, and the Lightning have it here. Hedman, Kucherov, turnaround shot, loose in front, off a save from Bobrovsky, and oh, oh, what a save made in front there by Nolachari on Eric Turnak. It wasn't Bobrovsky, it was Nolachari who maybe made the biggest save of the game for the Panthers right there as Turnak was staring at a vacated net. Bobrovsky was across to his right having made the previous save. What a save from Achari! and now an icing call against the Panthers, and
0: Place came unglued again. The whole thing was was fantastic. What are some of your takeaways from a a really entertaining game
1: one? Well, I expect six more of these. That's my number one takeaway. Hope so. I'm curious to see. There's some goaltending decisions that are going to have to come here. If you're Joel Quenville, what are you doing in game two? Uh, Bobrovsky made key saves, man. I'm not saying it. He... You know, I remember, this is a going back a long way, first Leaf game I ever covered on the road for the fan. Howard Berger's uh, wife uh, went into labor, and I went to Madison Square Garden. I think it was Marcel Cousineau's first NHL uh, game. Oh, wow. And um, he started against the Rangers, and I think they lost 6-5, the Leafs did. And I thought he made a bunch of really good saves. And Mike Murphy was the coach. I said, what do you think of Cousineau? when he goes, gave up six goals. So I'm curious to see how Joel Quenville feels about that. Yes, Bobrovsky made some good saves. He gave up five goals.
0: At the same time, this is a significant investment. And, you know, what's the, what's the thing that we talked about this with Columbus against Tampa? What was the best thing that John Tortorella did? Left them in. Yeah, that's a good call. I'm not saying the situations are the same because they're quite different. Other than the fact that it's Tampa Bay and it's that goaltender. So I don't know, my my inclination would still be, and again, I ain't Joel Quenville, I ain't making these decisions, I'm talking from the back seat. My hands are nowhere near a wheel here. But my inclination would be, leave Bob in for the next game.
1: By the way, there's a lot of online mad Hulk smash because of Kucherov and, yeah. and Stamkos. And I heard from some teams, not only during the game, but leading up to it too. Here's the thing. Number one, once you open the door, how are you going to close it? See, I don't like, you know, one thing in this league I don't like, and this is one thing where Berkey and I really fought, I don't like that Vancouver has Roberto Luongo's cap recapture charge against it. Either do I. If you approve a contract, I don't believe you should be allowed to retroactively go back and punish them for it. I think that's a joke, really. I, I don't like it at all. Now, having said that, that was collectively bargained. I still don't like it. I still think it should have been grandfathered, right? I don't disagree. Okay. So this whole thing with Kucherov and LTIR, first of all, Vancouver benefited from that for years. When Lawrence Gilman was there and he was the AGM to Mike Gillis, they used to manipulate it all the time. Chicago did it in 2015 with Patrick Kane. Now that that's happened a couple of times, it's very hard for me to listen to people scream bloody murder about it now. Once you've allowed it, you've allowed it. You can do it. And, you know, that's the way it is. To me, and, you know, Pierre LeBron, I'm sure he doesn't waste any of his time listening to this podcast, but he will laugh because he had to basically, when he ran the media hockey pool... I used every loophole I could find. He basically (laughs) had to ban everything I did. Uh, So like I'm all for loopholes. Like if I was an NHL team, I would be saying, what do we have to do to use these loopholes? But, you know, I was talking with someone this weekend. If you really wanted to fix it, what would you do? And, you know, one of the things I was saying was maybe a guy has to do minimum practices, because Kucherov practiced, I think, for 12 days before their first game. Maybe they're not allowed to practice for that long. You know, maybe it's a max three days or something like that. I don't know. See, the. <laughs> and the other thing I have to say is that I mentioned that to someone, and someone said to me, the problem is, what if they're coming back from something like a concussion? You can't do that. Right. So I don't know what the answer is, but the bottom line is to me is once it's been accepted practice, and it is accepted practice, everyone should just be doing it until everyone agrees to stop it.
0: Well, if it's that much of an issue, you know what the ultimate answer for it
1: is? What's that? Soft cap luxury tax. Hey, you're preaching to the converted here, but do you think that's going to happen?
0: No, I don't. But if if you you really think that it's an issue, Mm -hmm. if the NHL really thinks that it's an issue and really wants to do something about it, that is one of the things you can do. The whole, the whole time, and we're all reading the Cap Circumvention stuff. My point is, Jeff, I don't even
1: think they care about it, really, because they don't really do anything about it.
0: I'm with you. But they did do something about something a couple of times of significance about Cap Circumvention. Like the whole time that I'm, I'm reading all these tweets about Cap Circumvention and, oh, who's this number 86? He's really good. haha. where did they get him from? Where's he been hiding all season long? Like it's this new version of, um, uh, who was it? The Oilers used to bring in Rayo Rutzelainen. No, Rutzelainen,
1: yeah. Rutzelainen,
0: yeah. Yeah, Rayo Rutzelainen would come in. They, they
1: changed the Raver rules because Yeah, him. and I
0: think Minnesota did it with Ron Wilson too. I think it was Italy and then came back and played playoffs with the North Stars. So I'm reading all these tweets and all I can think about is how Tampa Bay Lightning, you know, looking at the loophole, using it to their advantage and, and here we are. All I could think about is, was that first Ilya Kovalchuk contract with New Jersey.
1: Jersey, yeah.
0: And how it didn't contravene the CBA other than it contravened this vague notion of the spirits of the CBA. It didn't feel right. Teams didn't like it. The NHL didn't like it. So it went to arbitration and they had to redo the contract. But that was the whole thing. I wanted to tweet out so many different times. Ilya Kovalchuk's first contract says hi. That was all I could think about, which shows maybe how petty I am through all these discussions about what Tampa oh, you're is petty, doing. Oh, you no
1: question.
0: <laughs> um, but we're getting sidetracked here. One of the things that I did want to bring up too, and they did mention this in the broadcast, I, I should point out as well. Part of the time I'm, I'm watching this and seeing how far Florida has come and seeing how much of a like a, a real high-end team this has become. And all I could think about was one of our podcasts early this season when Keith Yandel was going to be scratched and it was a Sunday Mm -hmm. and we sat here doing the podcast for each and there's Yandel and he scores a goal and the place goes crazy for him. Before that, when they're doing the introductions, the guys are happy that Yandel's coming out and Keith Yandel's not going to be scratched. Like this has been... A really interesting and emotional season for the Florida Panthers. New general manager comes in. A lot of new players come in. There's the Yandel drama. There's the goaltending controversy all season long. And I know they didn't win on Sunday night. Tampa takes game one. All right. They win 5-4. But it was an outstanding game.
1: And a great team had to play a great game to beat them. They pushed Tampa like crazy. Yes.
0: Florida was never out of this game for a second. They were always in it. There was a Sam Bennett controversy early. And then, boom, they ignore it. And right away, boom, Barkov scores.
1: By the way, I did think that was a goal. I don't think that's no goal. That's not goal interference. If you're not going to allow goals like that, there's going to be too many goals wiped out in the playoffs. I think you really have to push a guy into the net for it not to count. To me, that was a battle. I don't know. Pushing the pad. You can disagree with me. You'll be totally wrong, but you can disagree with me. Listen, like I always tell you, Fridge, I'd agree with you if you were right. Trust me, I would. (laughs) Uh, You know, the other thing too about Florida is, Jeff, I really thought before the season there was a decent chance that Joel Quenville could be the first coach in Seattle. That maybe if this season didn't go well, the two teams would find a way for it to happen. Because new GM? New GM, and I think that he would be a guy that Ron Francis would love to have. But now, how can that happen now? That's, you can't do that. You can't. Listen,
0: I'm with you, Frege. If we get six more games like that, oh. oh, that is just pure hockey heaven. But I'll tell you, man, so far, all these games have been great.
1: One other thing, one other thing. Now, I'm having trouble with one thing I'm watching on Florida, okay? Okay. I'm debating. There's 6D for my five-person Norris ballot. I'm debating how high I want to put Uyghur. And all I'm saying is, I think it could be very high. And playoffs don't count. So I'm really trying to ignore what he's doing as I decide how high I want to put him. So what are the other names that you have on there? I'm guessing you
0: have Victor Hedman on there.
1: Yes, that's one.
0: I'm guessing you also have... Adam Fox on there. That's two. I'm guessing you also have Jeff Petrie on there. Not one of the top six. Do you have Shea Theodore on there?
1: Yes. I'll tell you why. At this point, I might as well just tell you who they are. Jacob Slavin. Oh, going away. Oh, yeah. And Kale McCarr. Yeah. So six guys for five spots. And, you know, Uyghur for me you know, I'm thinking about it. So I got to kind of watch the game and ignore. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck. Ignore like what I'm trying to do here. Cause playoffs aren't supposed to count. Right. Yeah. Ballots are due on good luck Thursday. Yeah.
0: <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> Although you know what? Slavin's going to be great. Oh Yeah you know he's
1: going to be great. And so is Cal McCarr. The tough thing with McCarr is games played for me. Like I've always said, like people are like, well, he had great numbers and he played less games. Shouldn't that matter? And I think it's fantastic. He's the only point per game defenseman in the NHL this year. But like I do think in a hard league like the NHL, games played matters. So it's a really tough call for me. It really is. All right. John Cooper,
0: Joel Quedville, six more of those, please. Thank you. And with that, we'll kick it off. Free just set. We're ready to go. Welcome to 31 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the GMC Sierra AT4.
2: has had a good day in the face-off Petrangelo fails to clear. Penalty time is over. Centering feet in front of shot, and they score! Joel Eriksson-Eck wins it in overtime. 3.20 into the extra period. Found the puck just a few feet in front of the crease, and Minnesota takes game one. Greenway went down to a knee in the left corner. Petrangelo defending. Looked like Greenway was down and out. Managed to get the feed to the crease. And right out in front was Joel Erickson-Eck, who had 19 goals in the regular season, and this one defeats Vegas. It's a 1-0 final score.
0: Okay, it's taken a while, but Joel Erickson-Eck has arrived. 1-0 Minnesota over Vegas. It took overtime. A really good game. Some great goaltending performances in this one. But one of the stories happened even before the puck was dropped, and that is Zach Parise
1: healthy scratch what do we do with this Elliot number one I think they do legitimately feel that they're icing their best roster and it's tough to argue with the way that they're playing and the way that you know they they won game one you know one nothing victory on the road in Vegas it's tough to argue with the results the other thing that everyone's kind of watching here is what is this going to mean for the future? You know, Zach Parise has four years left on his contract. Cap it is 7-5. There's $10 million in cash. Six next year, two the year after, and then two final seasons of one. Like, he's got control. He's got a no-move clause. And the Wild have some big decisions to make. Kevin Fiala, arbitration eligible. Joel Erickson-Eck. Who had a huge year is going to be a Selkie trophy contender, scored the overtime winner, arbitration eligible. Kirill Kaprizov, you know that they're gonna to have to get him done. You know, so this is a team that's got three big contracts to deal with, and you've got Parise for four more years. Last year at the deadline, Parise the Wild. And the Islanders were working on a trade that would send them back to New York. And it had juice. It had legs. And the problem is that it was incredibly complicated. And when it got out, it just fell apart because of the complex nature of the deal. I think we're in a situation where the Wild are making Parise realize that as a player, his future is not with them. That there's a chance that there really isn't going to be a spot for him on the roster. So, what is he going to be willing to consider if there's the possibility of going somewhere else where he can play? Mm-hmm. You know, he's a Minnesota guy, he's got a Minnesota connection, but I think at the very least, he's being kind of warned that there may not be a future there for him. This is
0: real tough. I mean, this is, w- would you agree with me that Zach Parise is the most popular hockey player the Minnesota Wild have ever had?
1: Yes, I would say that. I mean, like a guy like Kaprizov could eventually change that.
0: Sure, but this is just one, one year in. But as far as like being yes. loved and the story and dad and attachment to the state and all of it, Shattuck, St. Mary, like the whole deal. So like a lot of the nerves are close to the skin. This is not just a a, a hockey situation. This is a a heart situation, right? This is an emotional one. This is a tough one for Bill Guerin. This is a tough one for the Minnesota Wild. Injuries are always the wild card, specifically in playoffs. But I'm with you, and this does very much feel like Zach Parise has played his last game as a Minnesota Wild.
1: The only reason I'm not going to say that 100% is because the world is a weird place. Yep. And one thing we've learned this year is that nothing happens as normal. But what I do believe is that that's a possibility. Like Parise now has to realize that's a possibility. And the other thing here too is that the $7.5 million cap hit, there's not a lot of teams that are going to be able to handle that, but they might be willing to handle the cash. Like I said, there's one more year before it goes down, and play especially on teams that need to hit the the cap floor and may want to do it in a way that they don't pay a ton of cash. The way Parise's contract is going is going to be valuable, but you know, last year I believe that when they were talking about moving him, the only place he really wanted to consider was the Islanders.
0: Is that because of Lou?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. of Lamorello. Absolutely. And they, they were working on a deal that involved Andrew Ladd and Mikko Koivu was in the deal too. And like I said, it was, it was really complex and really complicated. But like I said, I think this year they are trying to get him to say, okay, maybe last year it was just New York and I really don't want to leave Minnesota, but I'm willing to consider some other situations. To the game one itself, and this was a heavy hitter, like
0: right away. And how many times on this podcast this season have we talked about these two teams? When they get together, the games are great. And as you point out, even though it's only one goal, there's um, it's a one-nothing game, Minnesota wins, Erickson Equity with the, uh, the overtime winner. There were tons of chances. Like Ryan Hartman, I don't know how many chances <laughs> Ryan Hartman had in this game, but you know, every time you know you look up at the screen, Hartman's got another chance. Mark andre Fleury, excellent. Cam Talbot, excellent. And everybody was finishing your checks, the likes of which you would expect in game one of a playoff series with two teams that have gone right at each other all season long. 71 hits for Minnesota, 57 for the Vegas Golden Knights. Greenaway with 11, Felino with 10, Reeves with 10, McNabb with 10. What stood out for you, though, from that game one?
1: You know what stood out for me? And it's the same thing that stood out in all of the other series we've seen so far. You know, Washington was like this. Look at this show that Ovechkin put on. Everybody says the refereeing changes in the playoffs, right? Mm -hmm. I will go to the end of my days saying, Jeff, that the biggest change in the playoffs is not the refereeing. It's the players.
0: That there's more of an intensity there?
1: You know, each team has five to 10 games a year where they're just not there because of the way the schedule is and the way it sure. goes. In the postseason, there are no no hitters. There are no games off unless a team is quit or is broken. The teams come to play and the players come to play. So when everybody says to me the standard of officiating changes in the playoffs, I disagree completely. I think the refereeing is the same. I think what happens is the players change in the playoffs. They're much nastier. They're much edgier. They're much meaner. And they cheat a little bit more.
0: Uh, so, Elliot, it's the Islanders that draw first blood. The uh, And this one's an overtime winner as well. 4-3 is the final Islanders over the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, Kyle Palmieri leading the way with two goals. Uh, Jean-Gabriel Pajot. Uh, With a goal and two assists, maybe questionable goal tending on the goal. But nonetheless, yeah. uh, what do you make of game one between these
1: two? Well, what's Mike Sullivan going to do? Is he going to come back with Jari? Don't know. I mean, to me, that's the biggest question. That was the difference in the game. You automatically assume that Malkin's going to play that game too, right? And the fact he doesn't show up.
0: Yeah, you assume so.
1: That's a red flag to me too. That you know Malkin wasn't so. There's two things for Pittsburgh that concern me. Number one is that Malkin doesn't mysteriously appear like Kucherov and, and Stamkos and mm-hmm. whoever else does. But the second thing is, you know, what are you doing in goal? Are are you patient enough to go back with Jari in game two, or are you saying, you know what, we can't wait?
0: I thought Sorokin was excellent. Yep, with 39 saves, Crosby again excellent, the uh, like the hand-eye on the goal is just next level and you expect it from Sidney Crosby.
2: The shot! It goes in! Now start Brian the Jumbo, Homer. Extra crispy, please. Brian Dumoulin with the shot. Crosby gets a piece of the Penguins have the well, it's been all pressure for the Pittsburgh Penguins in this second period, and the New York Islanders not handling it well. Letty turns it over. Dumoulin shot from a long way out, directed at that. It. It's a one-handed tip by Sidney Crosby. What a play by the Penguins' captain. Watch the hand-eye coordination. Pokes at it, knocks it down, and scores the goal.
0: But the one thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on was not related to this game, but we saw it on Saturday night. And that's a Sidney Crosby, Colby Armstrong interview.
3: You look good. you have makeup on? A little bit. You might want to think about it. You should maybe wear the hat you were talking about. What hat? I thought you said you were going to wear a hat. And I was just seeing your big loaf right now.
4: I'm trying to look at your office here.
3: I got uh, me and Stevie Y with the world championship title. Yeah. Oh, here, check this out. Oh, yeah, I see the back there. I got all the boys. Nice. I got a favorite winger award from Wilkes-Barre Booster Club. That's that trophy. <laughs> Let's go. So Brian Burke, one of your new bosses, I guess you could call him. Him and I, we, we kind of go way back, and he called me recently and said the team needs more truculence. In. So how do you how do you feel about me coming back on your wing?
1: I don't believe that at all, but I wouldn't think you'd be the guy you'd pick if he was trying to bring that to the lineup.
3: <laughs> that would be something I'll take. Can you imagine me just breathing all heavy on the bench? <laughs> this interview isn't supposed to be about me, but we were road roommate, roommates for, for a good while. What's your best Colby Armstrong story?
5: I would say just your whole your whole game day routine with Ellen. With that first time you throw on the TV, you throw Ellen on, and I'm like, what's, what's going on here? And then you start doing the dance that she does when she comes out, gets introduced. And I was like, what is this? And then sure enough, next game, you do it. Next game, you do it.
3: Dude, you got to get it going. You got to get dancing. You got to get feeling it, you know? Don't act like it didn't fire you up. Yeah, it got me going.
0: And here's why I like it. Traditionally, we've seldom on television, radio, wherever, podcast allowed players to talk to players. That seldom happens. Part of the greatness then, I thought the interview was great. I loved it.
1: It was excellent.
0: Of Colby Armstrong interviewing Sidney Crosby, his old, you know, teammate, roommate was that this is a peek into two players talking to each other. They don't need someone like me or someone like you getting in the middle and getting in the way. Just let players talk to each other. Why do we try to complicate it? If you haven't heard it or seen it, we have it on our social channels. Um, Sidney Crosby interviewed by Colby Armstrong. What did you think of it, Fridge?
1: Well, first of all, Jeff, thank you for advocating that you and I have no employment. <laughs> Jake,
0: talk us out of a job.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, well, Jeff just said on the podcast that he's basically unnecessary. <laughs> it's not wrong. The, the way I look at it is this. like, I, First of all, I think you should always try to take advantage of relationships course so if if someone has a good relationship with someone yes by all means you know let them do the interview if that's i think it depends on what the interview subject is like i i think if it's something that's fun absolutely armstrong and sid makes sense and i wouldn't be surprised if we do more of that if it's something that's a little more serious though are you comfortable putting a friend in that position so I think it. I think the situation matters. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would just say too is that you know Crosby's been interviewed so many times in our network. I've had good ones with him. I've had not good ones with him that are probably more my fault than his. You know, I would just think that when you have somebody that you're going to talk to as many times as Crosby is in his career, then why not mix up the people? Let everybody kind of have an approach. Let. Ron have it. Let Colby have it. Let Christine Simpson have it. Let you know myself have it. I was really happy with the one I did uh last year with him on the 10-year anniversary of the Golden Goal. Mm. But I couldn't do the interview that Colby did with him on Saturday.
0: That was excellent. Do yourself a favor and uh and check that one out. Uh Boston, Washington. Uh this one's overtime. This one's Nick Dowd, OT winner. Caps three boston 2 and coming out of it craig anderson 39 years of age is the story
1: what a performance
0: i felt great for anderson that night he's someone that i've always liked a uh, wonderful guy wonderful family his his wife nicole is a tremendous person we've talked about on the show before about cheering for people i was so happy for craig anderson
1: yeah it was fantastic i'm really happy for him too i you know, I thought that was a game that Boston had to have because of the circumstances. Yeah. If Boston loses that series, they're going to regret that game. I think they missed 21 shots including some glorious great A chances. They had to pressure Anderson more. They didn't. And Anderson battled. Like, to me, that's all you ever want to see on a team is you you want to see your goaltender battling or someone battling in a Difficult situation, and he one hundred percent did that. I was, I was really happy for Anderson and for Nicole, who no doubt was watching. One of my sayings that I, I have, Jeff, is that the regular season at this time of year, the regular season doesn't matter. It comes down to you know, no matter how what kind of a year you've had, especially if it's a bad one, the postseason allows you to make amends. You can write a new narrative, and I think immediately. That is the case for Ilya Samsonov. We don't know as we tape this podcast if he's going to start Game Two. And listening to Peter Laviolette on Sunday, I'm tempted to believe he won't. But Laviolette is the king of postseason misdirection, so he could. <laughs> but you know, Samsonov twice on the COVID list. You know, the organization not thrilled with him and Kuznetsov. Depending on what the situation with Vanek is here. Samsonov suddenly is thrust into a more important position and he can put behind a really frustrating year and a year that I think the organization wasn't happy with and make everyone forget it if he comes out now and gives them any kind of goaltending.
0: Okay, so the Scotia North Division still yet to get underway, but Elliot, let's turn our attention there. We're going to talk to Eric Engels here in a couple of moments, who covers the Montreal Canadiens for Sportsnet. He'll cover off the uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Montreal Canadiens series. But up next, Paul Stastny, uh, who just played his one thousandth uh, NHL game. Which listen, we've had a we've had a, a full season of, uh, of of celebrations of milestones for hockey players. We do every season, but it seems as if for whatever reason, they are just more profound, achieving milestones uh, in this uh, of the most unique season anyone's seen in the NHL. I've always looked at the and said, and this may sound weird, that's a really good hockey player. And by that, I mean when you're a guy that the coach can tap on your shoulder and that coach knows exactly what you're going to be able to do out there and is comfortable putting you in just about any situation. You're a good hockey player. I went all the time in the world for this guy. I think he's an honest player. I think good teams need players like Paul Stastny on their squad. And listen, the family name is legendary, and that'll come up in the interview. But when I say the name Paul Stastny, what's jumping to your mind?
1: I've always been impressed by the way he's able to articulate the game. And that is probably not a great answer from him in terms of his hockey sense, but I found it very valuable whenever I've asked him a question, whenever I'm looking at an explainer and it's helped me in broadcasts and blogs, that if I ask him a question as to why does this happen or how does this happen, he describes it in a way that's easy for me to understand and therefore it helps me convey it to the masses. So that's probably not the answer that you were thinking of or that maybe even he would want me to give. But as a media member who tries to help the fans consume the game, I find that very valuable.
0: So what you're saying then is if he wanted to, he could come for all of our jobs.
1: Yes. Like you're basically giving away our jobs this podcast. (laughs) We don't need to do interviews and Paul Stastny can talk for all of us. And after the break,
0: you'll hear from him. Paul Stastny of the Winnipeg Jets. Elliot, pleased to be joined now by Paul Stastny of the Winnipeg Jets, who joins us in advance of their opening round series against the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, Paul, first of all, thanks so much for joining us. And on a scale of one to the sky is falling, how concerned should we be that you didn't skate Sunday with the team?
4: Yeah, not concerned at all. I think Sunday is just it's a rest day. Big sports day on TV. Golf is early. Tennis is on. So I think when you're older, sometimes you you can pull some strings to get to, to get out of practice.
1: I like that. You sent a text CC, Kevin shovel Paul Maurice and teammates. <laughs> I'm just going to lie in bed today and I'll see you tomorrow. That's a good one. <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> well, listen, when you, uh, when you skate in a thousand games, uh, it does come with some privileges. So yeah, a belated congratulations on, on skating in a thousand games in the NHL. We've talked a lot about milestones this season. Most recently, of course, Patrick Marlowe uh, with the San Jose sharks, but um, there was a few things there. Uh, the jersey, which was such a nice touch with the number 1,000. There was uh, the video from Draper and Riley. What stood out from that day for you?
1: I think
4: just like the outpouring of like messages that we got, both my wife and I, uh, my mom and my dad, you know, just from people around the league that we played with, you know, I think we we made it a, a conscious effort to be good people and it's just not about hockey. So every time we played in four different teams, three different cities. Or four different cities. I don't even know, whatever it is. But every time we go, <laughs> do, we, you know, we don't, yeah, sometimes it's nice being a hockey there, but at the same time, that doesn't mean much. And I think my wife and I always go out and make an effort to make good relationships with people that help us, or whether it's neighbors or whether it's, you know, doctors or different people at school. And not just hockey people each other, but just people that we didn't think we'd left, you know, that big of an impact on. You know, we're following us and keeping tabs on us. And that, you know, feels pretty special and very humbling when you see that.
1: You know what I loved? I love the fact that your kids got their own mini silver sticks. I thought that was a great touch.
4: Yeah. I mean, kudos and hats off to the Winnipeg organization. I think, uh, I don't think I've ever seen that. I think, uh, my kids were pumped about it. And then my wife said that my son was there. They haven't been in a hockey game, right? Since
1: last
4: February everything shut down last year we're on the road for a while. So I think more than think my, my kids were just so pumped to be at a hockey game and I was trying to warn them. I'm like, you know, there's gonna be no fans there. There's no mm-hmm. family room with other kids, but they still had a blast. And my son was playing with the silver stick for a little bit until, uh, you know, they switched out that plastic stick during the game. But the one thing that sucks about this pandemic and I mean, there's many things, but it's, I feel bad for the kids. A lot of these young kids, you know, they're so used to playing with other kids and just enjoying each other's times. And especially, you know, things open up for a little bit and they shut down for a bit. And you just, it's very consistent. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, obviously, you always worry about the future for them. But at the same time, you realize, you know, they just want to interact and, and play games with other people. And there's only so much mom and dad time they can have. And there's only so much time they can spend on their iPad. And, you know, when they get out, when they get to play hockey or play soccer, play whatever, you just realize how much fun they have and how much they miss it.
0: Speaking of family, I can remember my dad telling me about your dad before the 1976 Canada Cup. You got to see Peter Stastny. Oh, you got all the, the legend of Peter Stastny growing before the, uh, the, the Canada Cup that year. I've always been curious and maybe there's no real profound answer to it because you're in the middle of it. But what was it like growing up as the son of, you know, in, in my opinion, one of the best hockey players the game has ever seen?
4: Yeah, I think I was just naive to it. I think there wasn't as much uh, social media or internet or YouTube, right? So yeah, I think for me growing up, we didn't go to as many games either. I was the youngest of four, so obviously, you know, I was the tail end of things. But there was times where I think as I got older, I realized how many people valued his opinion. And, you know, I just wanted to get input. And, you know, just having my dad as a father more, more important than anything was just, you know, you, you never want to listen to what your parents say when you're younger. And then when you're older, you realize you're <laughs> right the whole time. <laughs> yeah yeah. especially like my first year pro when I played with Sakic and Turgeon and Footy and LaPerriere those were guys that all played with my dad or had you know were involved with my dad and just kind of came full circle and you know once you start hearing stories about that then I mean I've always respected him obviously as a player and as a person but you can appreciate more and more of, of how good of a hockey player he was and how he never kind of He was who he is, you know, he never strayed away from where he was, whether he was, you know, 25 years old in this league or whether he was, you know, four years old and raising his kids. He's always kind of stayed true to his beliefs and his values. And I think that's the biggest thing I take out of it and, and, you know, realize how lucky I am
0: that I'll, I'll tell you that is such a profound observation there's a there's a wonderful quote from mark twain when he talks about when he was 14 years old his father you know he thought was so ignorant and couldn't stand to have him around but by the time he turned 21 he was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years it's a really wonderful wonderful way to contextualize something that i think paul we've we've all gone through elliot go ahead
1: you know, I, Paul, I was going through just, I don't know, a rabbit hole last week, and I I was watching some old Nordiques and Canadians games. I'm just curious, what did your dad tell you about those games?
4: He never talked. I mean, guys who know my dad well, I think will be like, I'm like he never talks about himself. But then when we do have people over, when people ask him questions, that's when he answers, and that's a lot of times when I kind of, you know, keep my ears open and, and listen to those stories and whether it's Christmas parties or weddings or different events it's always kind of you know my buddy's parents that grew up in his generation are the ones always asking questions about like you said whether it's the Canada Cup whether it's defecting Slovakia whether it's those rivalries and that's when I listen but he doesn't really talk like I said he doesn't really talk about himself and then sometimes we'll talk about highlights and I see the you know the game seven winner or I see the ones they lost and he can remember every little play that kind of End of the series, mm. you know, for mm. a good fortune or that went against him, and you know he still remembers those days. But that's what you know I like about him. I think he's very humble, and and he's just he just lives in the present now. I think he's just kind of watching his kids grow up, and he's our biggest fan and watches every game. And he still thinks the obvious things to me all the time, like that. I know you told me this like every week. He's like, I know, just making sure you don't forget. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I mean, how often have you had a chance? And we're dwelling a lot on your father here. We do want to get to you in the Jets, but. Um, Fascinated with your dad and your entire family, how often would you uh go back and watch old video of your dad? and And what did you think, or what do you think of him as a player?
4: During the pandemic here, like you said, when, uh, when we we're back home in Vegas, I remember they're showing. They showed a couple of games of the show Network. I think it was. I don't know if it was like eighty four, eighty five Montreal Quebec Game Seven. I don't even know if it's game seven, whatever it was, but I remember my dad every time I miss a game, or if I'm hurt, my dad always kind of, you know, suddenly makes fun of me about like how I'm so weak how why am I always getting hurt? You know, I thought this guy never missed a game. And I I'm watching. Oh, I think it was game five, so it was the first round, so it was best to find and I'm watching it. I'm like, Dad, where are you? He's like, oh I always hurt, I missed game four, and game five, and the next two games. I'm like you make fun of me all the time, but then you know, you get hurt in the you know you know the biggest game against the biggest problem in game five <laughs> so like, you know somebody like, but it was it was fun to watch and then i think i to me i'm like a student in the game and i like the history of the game. so i've seen highlights and i you know it's fairly similar sometimes when you see the way he skates the way he plays you know how i'm like similar to it but at the same time it's more about the stories the guys have played with him. about and i can see it i can see his competitive juices i've seen it my whole life whether it's on a tennis court whether it's on the soccer field whether it's playing against him in chess right there's He never wants to lose. And, you know, he had that same mentality on the ice and if he lost, he'd be pissed off when talking to anyone. If he won, you know, he'd be the happiest guy in the world. Just, you know, the sun's coming up all the time, but he wanted to win, you know, and he'd win at all costs. And at the same time, you know, he wasn't afraid of anybody and he wasn't afraid of anything. And obviously Mm -hmm. him defecting Slovakia or Czechoslovakia when my mom was nine months pregnant, kind of, you know, that was kind of the first step of realizing, you know, he's, When you grow up with little, you know, and it can be taken away from you at any time, I think, you know, it makes you that much more hungry. And I think that that's where his hunger came from.
1: So, going into the playoffs here this year, it hasn't been an easy finish for the Jets. And I know there's a lot of theories, Paul. Does it matter how you go into the playoffs? To you, a guy who's seen everything, does it matter how you go into the playoffs?
4: Yeah, no. Like, sometimes, yeah, sometimes, no. I think. I don't know, I've been on teams that done both and some have been good, some have been bad, whatever. You, you can't predict it. I totally think you can't just flip the switch. I don't like that when people think that. I think you can't just do that. I think if you have good habits and you're losing games and you've had some bad bounces, but you're you're figuring certain things out, I think that's important. And I think that's what Paul uh, Maurice has really harped on is you know, trying to find the good habits. And especially in a year like this where you're playing the same teams or we're playing potential playoff teams about – you know, things we might do in our game. Like we would try different things. Those last eight, nine games, we tried different things that, you know, might have helped us defensively, might have hurt us a little bit offensively, but it took the positive those. And then we're kind of fine tuning the other things to try to get everything kind of work at once. And then I also think uh, losing Ehlers, I think, was a big loss for us. And I don't mm-hmm. think you'll realize how oh, good he's been. I, in my mind, I think he's been our most consistent player all year, just because he brings a different, different dynamic. Different dynamics of the game, I think, from when I was here three years ago. To now, I think he's matured big time. And whether it's him getting older or whether it's him scoring his first playoff goal last year, I think, you know, he's just way more relaxed. Day in, day out, he's been very more consistent. And he's a lot more even keeled than when he was three years ago. And that just, that comes kind of with maturity. But, you know, he, the guy never complains about anything. I think sometimes he could. He could complain more. You know, there's times where he should probably be playing more. And that's just – but he never does. You know, he plays his game all the time. Whoever he's playing with, he creates chances power play so I think getting him back I think will be really important
0: when you're playing with Ealers how much in your mind are you saying whether it's you know yourself or Dubois saying we just need to put the puck in an area where we make a foot race because we know Ealers is gonna win that race
4: yeah I mean when I'm playing with him, I mean my whole mindset is just getting the puck and get it to him <laughs> early right because I think he would rather have it early and ski through the zone because he's so fast you know people won't gap up if they try to gap up against them they'll just chip it around them but there are certain players especially today's team that want the puck early and i think with him it's get him early and then he does a good job of, of bringing one or two guys to him mm-hmm. and whether it's me or or who's there playing with him, our job is kind of to find that open hole or get to net, knowing that it's going to get there you know and i think guys that want to hold on to the puck might not like playing with him because he wants to hold on to the puck too but for me you know i want to distribute and find the open guy like makes things happen every time he's on the ice so for me it's about getting to him early but not in a bad position obviously right and sure yeah he's always been a very easy player to play with and it's just fun guy to play with
0: is he the fastest player you ever played with
4: he's (laughs) they're all different right they're every every player in this league's built different you have guys that kind of float on the ice that are six three weigh 200 pounds you have guys that are super powerful like a mckinnon who's just super explosive super fast I mean, his nickname is Fly, just because he's, I mean, he's like a little water bug out there. He's so quick. He's so light. I mean, I just found out he figure skated growing up, and now it makes a lot of sense because when you see the way he turns both ways, the way he, he cuts on a dime, he's just so comfortable doing these 360 pirouettes you know, with his head up, and it just seems like second nature to him, and I think, I think that helps out a little bit, but I think just his skating ability is very unique, and it's very rare in this league.
1: Uh, by the way, I, I do agree with you on Ehlers this year. Like, I, I don't think he's going on my ballot. He's not. But when I was starting at about 35 to 40 games in to start putting together my long list for like things like the Hart Trophy, I had Ealers on my list. Like, I, I just really thought that he wasn't going to be at the top of it. I was debating if he was going to be in the maybe the five position. I thought he had a really unbelievable year this year. And your point, Paul, about him... Like his mind being clear because he finally got his first playoff goal, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like it just must have been a relief, even though the Jets didn't win last year, the way he competed and the way he battled and produced.
4: Yeah, I think it's two things. I mean, that, I think, so you trade Patty away, and obviously, you know, Fly and Patty have always been line mates. And I think sometimes, you know, when you're playing with line who's such a goal scorer, you know, those guys are so close that sometimes it might have taken away from Ehlers a little bit because he was looking for Patty so much. And, you know, when you mm-hmm. do play with goal scores like that, you're obviously always looking for him a little bit. So that's another thing. But, yeah, I remember when he scored in the playoffs, I texted him. I was in the bowl when it happened. Mm-hmm. And you could just tell because when we had that run in 2018, he wasn't playing bad. He had so many chances and nothing went in. And as the playoffs went on, you could just, like, when you're that young, obviously you put so much pressure on yourself. And you could just see kind of, you know, it was just building on. The pressure was building because he wanted to score so bad. It's almost harder like that. And sometimes I'm like, you just got to get one. You know, and the next year they lose to St. Louis – you know, he didn't get one. And then all of a sudden, you get that first one. And, I mean, even talking to this year, he's like, yeah, man, it, it felt so nice getting it. And all of a sudden, you know, the next game. And the best part was his goal was the least likely of a Nikolai either is, You know, net trying he tips it in on a power play where, you know, you usually see him coming down the half wall. You see him with speed, kind of, you know, one-on-one guy. So, of all ways, he scores a goal. Like, that's the way he scores. And then all of a sudden, that just, you know, made him relax. And all of a sudden, for a guy like that's that, good. Future that bright, and almost it's, it's that next step to come, you know, become an even better player.
1: I am worried by the way. Now, I'm going to call him Fly on Air. Now that you've put this into my <laughs> head,
4: <laughs> yeah, I'm so I, I, I never know, right? I never know if guys that on, on air because Nikolai is not the easiest with Eilers doesn't flow off the tongue, fly is just so much easier. And if you see him, it's just you know, the way he plays, it totally makes sense.
0: Just so you know, Paul, he's he's totally going to call him "fly" or at least reference it to cover himself. I want to ask you about Paul Maurice. You know, one of the more interesting coaches in the NHL, and uh, everybody who's ever had him sort of has one or two stories about him. Y- you've talked previous about you know the number of Winston Churchill quotes that he'll that he'll come up with uh, on a dime. You've had some pretty heavyweight coaches in your career, whether it's Joel Quenville, whether it's Ken Hitchcock. What do you make of Paul Maurice as a head coach? What stands out for you?
4: I mean, I speak high volumes of him and then, you know, when I was here last time for thirty games and when I left, you know, anyone that would ask me, I would you know, I had nothing but praise to say. I think he just has a good understanding of of the game today and he realizes his coaching has to change a little bit from where it was ten years ago or fifteen years ago. He just he you knows how to relate to the players all the time and whether it's one on one, you know, talking to Blake to get to guys that are 20 years old, or he knows how to talk to 20 year olds. And he does a good job of kind of managing everybody. And it's hard. It's hard to keep everyone happy. And I always try to tell guys this. I'm like, every team has four or five guys, or two or three, it doesn't matter. Every team, there's certain guys that need to be pampered. And I mean, probably in business is everywhere, right? Some guys Mm -hmm. just love to hear the praise all the time. And that's how you get the best of them. And then there's other guys that don't need it, but you know, if they get yelled at, that's how you get the best of them. And he's done a good job of understanding that. And it's hard to do it's hard to manage when especially when you have so many good players and so many guys every every guy thinks they should be playing more every guy thinks this and he does a good job of realizing or talking to guys you know to buy into their role and realize how important they are and at the same time you know look at the big picture and realizing the better they do the better the team does the better team does the more individual mm-hmm. success for everybody
0: i still maintain he may have the best deadpan in the entire nhl like to to me he's one of the more entertaining coaches uh in the league how much do you see the funny side of paul Maurice?
1: not lately yeah that's true
4: <laughs> no but that's what i'm saying like lately he's actually been more funny because he realized really? like yeah you know how it is right like yeah the days basically like i've been around the days where i'm like oh my god he's gonna yell at us we're done like our confidence is shattered and that's me talking 15 years in this league he comes in with the exact opposite mindset i'm like oh mm-hmm. this guy just has a good feeling for the room you know the days like you know we're feeling good this or that that's when he's yelling at us i think he knows you know he gets a feel that's what he said when i talked to me the other day i was asked about how he comes up with his premium speeches or whatever and he says he always kind of just obviously he thinks of certain things but everything's kind of off the cuff and he just he gets a feel for the room and that's that's hard to do and i think whether it's talking to certain guys you're just just thinking you know for a guy that used to play hockey you realize you know a lot of times what happens when you when you're this much older and everyone's playing the game, whether it's 20, 30 years, you forget what it's like to be a player and you forget the mindset, you forget you know the internal pressure that every guy puts on themselves. But he he hasn't forgotten that. His humor's been great, but sometimes it's <laughs> I appreciate it. Wheels appreciate it. Sometimes I feel like the young guys don't appreciate it because they you know it just goes in one ear out the other or they don't understand it. But uh, he'll make fun <laughs> of makes fun of himself just as much as he makes you know jokes here and there.
1: Good on him. I-, I wanted to ask you about uh, just McDavid and Drysaddle. They're great players. McDavid had just ridiculous numbers against you guys this year. You're never going to stop them, but what do you have to do to at least slow them?
4: Like you said, you, you just got to try to contain them, right? They're going to get their points, their goals, their chances, but sometimes it's, it's a matter of, like defending as a as a unit of five. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes you're out there and there's. There's not much going on. Sometimes you might have to sacrifice a little bit and be like, all right, we're going to have to sit back here a little bit. Once we get in the D zone, we're going to have to sit back and not go for that chance, not try to play that transition game. And You know, we have some guys that can play a transition game that want to play a run-and-gun game, but mm-hmm. then we have some guys that realize, like, if we're going to win, you know, we can't get in these high-scoring games against these guys because that just, you know, that feeds their game. They just play better and better like that. And then I think sometimes you get so caught up in worrying about how to defend them, you realize when you play the best teams, or the hardest teams to play against are the teams that have the puck and grind you and they, and they make you defend all the time. And then you can't really pick up as much speed. So for us, it's also, you know, when you do get a puck in the offensive zone, it's trying to kind of make them play as much defense as possible and not making that whole play. You know, sometimes you've got that whole play and it, it might work, whatever, 10, 15% of the time,
5: mm-hmm. but there's
4: time and place for those times. And sometimes you don't want to do it because all of a sudden that's a three-on-two other way. And I mean, we get so fast, a three-on-two really means a, a potential breakaway from, So it's more about trying to make them defend and trying to make them stop. And, you know, it's the same way like when you play a lot of these guys, right? Defending is just no one wants to defend. I don't care how good of a two-way player you are. I don't care how much you have defending. It's just playing offense is way more fun. And, And defending, all of a sudden you lose your speed. You're at a standstill. It's a lot harder to create offense from there.
0: Yeah, I I'm, I'm curious cuz listen you as you mentioned you've been in the league for a lot of years and you've seen a lot of different hockey players what's something that guys like me and Elliot who just you know watch it on television talk in studio about mm-hmm. it what's one thing that you think we miss about Connor McDavid that as a player who's been in the league as long as you have you say that's the thing that's most impressive about 97
4: Uh I don't know I think to me it's there's very few guys in this league that can skate faster without the puck than with the puck, right? And what makes him so special is uh, he's so explosive. He's so fast. I mean, fast on another level that it's just like one stride, and you hear him, you're like, oh, he's gone. But he can stick handle so fast and think at the same time. So a lot of times when you see in, in the media, it's like, oh, this guy's just fast to David. I'm like, that's fine. It doesn't matter. But the fact that he can think the game and stick handle – And move his speed all at the same kind of pace. I think that's Mm -hmm. what makes him special. So when you see these two on ones, these no look plays, these three on twos, you know, obviously the game's slowing down in his head. Everything's in sync. And you don't see that at all, right? Like that the game slows down for him, but he's also going 100 miles an hour. So it's just generational players, very few and far in between. And I think a very special player. And I think one thing that's changed for him this year, you know, playing against them and seeing them is. He seems a little stronger, you know, On um, he's gotten better on face-offs. He seems stronger, you know, on his edges battling the puck. You know, I think in the past, hmm. you know, he's attacking guys. And that's something that, you know, guys have talked about, whether he's that's just him maturing as a player and getting better because obviously he's still young and he's always going to get better. And that's just him adding to his game, whether he whether are it to his frame or whether all of a sudden he's a little more hard-nosed now where you're like, oh, you realize you can't knock him off pucks in the corners like you could a couple of years ago when I think he was
1: just trying to go off the rush only that's very interesting paul thank you very much for making some time for us and congratulations on a thousand to you and your family that's a journey not just the player makes but the family takes together that's awesome
4: thank you very much thanks for having me guys
0: And that's Paul Stastny. We thank him for stopping by the program and we thank Scott Brown of the Winnipeg Jets for making that happen. Uh, Before we get to Eric Engels and a preview of the Toronto Maple Leafs Montreal Canadiens series, Elliot, um, you talked about this Saturday on Hockey Night in Canada on Headlines. The Vancouver Canucks, what is happening, if anything, with the organization and Jeff Cortnall?
1: Well, he came public and did an interview uh, with Ben Kuzma in the Vancouver province on Sunday, uh, confirming a lot of what we kind of heard, that he was being considered for a non-GM or president position. I had heard that Cortnall had felt that he wasn't qualified for those two jobs, which is probably smart. And he confirmed that in the interview with uh, with Ben Kuzma. So I think we've got a situation where the ownership is saying we can't come back with this. Now, Jeff Cortnall was a longtime friend of the Aquilinis, the owners. Goes back to his playing days and and their days. Like they helped them start uh, some charity initiatives and they were big contributors to it. So there was a long friendship there. You know He made the introduction of Mike Gillis to the Aquilines before Gillis uh, became the general manager. And Trevor Linden left in 2018. And a year later, he was about a day away from being hired as an advisor or a consultant. And I don't know what happened. I've heard lots of theories about what happened. But basically, they got the ball to the one-yard line and it never got punched in. At the last minute, the decision was made not to do it. And now they've gone back to them. And I just think we're in a situation here where I think what the owners have decided is we can't come back the same way, but they don't know what to do. It's a dangerous spot Mm. because you've had a plan, you've had a plan, you've had a plan. Your plan is to bring back your general manager for another year. And now all of a sudden, Jeff, your plan is thrown awry and you're sitting here and the clock is ticking to the end of the season and you're kind of trying to figure out what do we do? And plus also it's a financial problem for them because obviously they lost a ton of money this year and that matters. They don't want to spend five times five on Jim Rutherford or whatever. That's not what they're thinking of doing. You've know, you got this thing here where you're saying, okay, we have a plan. Now your plan's thrown off. You realize you have to change it. You don't want to throw 25 million at somebody. What are you going to do? And I think that's what they're trying to figure out.
0: How much of this is player-driven, this idea that they need to change? How much of this is player-driven? How much of this is fan-driven?
1: Whatever I think a lot I mean. of it is fan driven. Like, I think they knew this year was going to be potentially a down year for them. But I think the players being upset at how during the outbreak that they felt that there was no communication with them. Mm-hmm. I think it's the fact that Travis Green had to hold an extremely uncomfortable media conference the day that, you know, Jake Vertanen was removed from the team. I think there's a lot of things here that have just kind of gone wrong and each one of them hurts the impression of the franchise. Like I don't even think it's on ice related, Mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest. I think they were expecting and prepared for the possibility that this wasn't going to be a great season. What I think has happened is that they've had just some things that have happened that haven't been handled very well. And it has eroded the consumer confidence in the organization.
0: Yet they're trying to do this without, as you mentioned, completely blowing the budget.
1: Yes. And again, we talked about this last week. I understand that. If you don't have skin in the game, you don't understand what it's like to have skin in the game. I respect that. After a year where you've lost as much money as the organization has, I do understand that you have to be prudent, And I think what they're trying to do is say, is there a prudent decision that we can make? You know, one of the things that's kind of happened is, you know, Florida's making some changes and, you know, Florida has made some very interesting bets. You know, Jonathan Marchessault was one, Carter Verhage, who scored in game one, was another. Like every team, Florida's had its makes and it's had its misses. But they've had some very interesting makes. And Cam Lawrence is is one of the guys there who was part of that decision-making group. They're letting them go. And those guys kind of grew up with Vancouver ties.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: And I wonder if you're the Canucks, should you be looking at them? The other thing too, I, I think in Vancouver that I would say is you're going to have good years and you're going to have bad years. That's just life. You got to have two hands on the wheel and they just look like a crazy driver. Who's going from lane to lane. You have to be steady. They just don't look steady.
0: Was it like this even before the JT Miller press conference, which when we look back at this Vancouver Canucks season, that's going to be one of the headlines.
1: You see, like I remember when the outbreak happened, (laughs) Like, I do my weekly hit in in Vancouver there on the Sportsnet station. I said, I think Jim Benning's coming back. Like I said, I always believed he was coming back. I always believed he was going to be the GM. Mm -hmm. I think around the pandemic is when it started to change. I just think that the last, I don't know, what is it, the last six weeks, the last month, you know, there's been a lot kind of happening there. And now the other thing too is now the fans vote with their wallets, right? Yes. And I think there's there's a little bit of concern about that. And there should be. You know, your consumers are upset. You you have to be aware of it. Anyway, so I think there are a lot of conversations going on about where they're going to go from here. Like I know people have said for sure Jim Benning's not coming back. I don't believe that yet. As we tape this on Sunday night, mm-hmm. I don't believe that yet. Do I think it could happen? I think it's possible. I don't think it's what they want, but I think it's possible. But I don't think that decision is made. I think that decision is going to be made probably this week. You know, the other thing too is like the coach is is really unhappy. You can see it. There hasn't been a ton of conversation and negotiation about his future. Mm Mm-hmm. If they want him back, now it comes down to what does Travis Green believe his leverage is? Does he think he's getting another job? Then he's leaving right after the season's over and you've lost him. Now, do you think you've got leverage on him? Well, then you play hardball. Do you want him back? Well, then you show him you want him back. Something could change at the last minute. They could make him a big offer that makes him say, okay, but you know, you know, look at the way you're looking at it right now, they're, they're not acting like an organization that wants them back.
0: Is that just a matter of, and we've talked about this a couple of different times, he has his number and they have a different number and no one wants to come off their number?
1: I think that's part of it. I just don't know how much real negotiation there's been, but I do think that's a big part of it.
0: And the situation, if Jim Benning, again, this is all speculation, but if Jim Benning does come back, we would expect... A number of different people working around him.
1: I don't know. I heard they've offered their scouts extensions. Hmm. Like some of them were up. I've heard they've, like that tells me that they were always planning on bringing him back. Story
0: continues. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's get to Eric Engels. He covers the uh, Montreal Canadiens for Sportsnet here to preview a much anticipated series. It was close at 93 it was an easy four games for the Montreal Canadiens in 1979. And here we are in a pandemic season. The classic rivalry set to renew again in the postseason. The Leafs and the Habs. Here's Eric Engels. <music> Okay, so we are pleased to be joined now by Eric Engels, who covers the Montreal Canadiens for Sportsnet. First of all, Eric, thanks so much for stopping by. And secondly, if I told you at the beginning of this season that Montreal's playoff would begin with Carey Price and Brendan Gallagher sent to the American Hockey League, what would you have said?
5: I would have said this was probably going to be a crazy season and nothing would surprise me, but this one has thrown me a little bit for a loop.
0: Price and Gallagher off to the AHL for a little conditioning time
5: you know what? It's six weeks without a game for Brendan Gallagher and four weeks without one for Carey Price. I think the one concern is that they're playing against the Marlies. You better hope that if Gallagher's in the lineup, Brandon Batic is standing next to him. Uh, you don't want anything <laughs> happening to him. And, you know, Price, it's so important for a goaltender, more than anything for a goaltender, to see pucks. And we saw it with Freddie Anderson in the AHL before he came up to the NHL. And I, I think, you know, the Canadians really wanted to get them into the last game they played against Edmonton, but it was too soon and too fast. And, I think this was probably part of the plans for a while, and they were smart to just drop it on Sunday night that Monday those two guys are going to play a little bit of game action. Price is scheduled to play half the game. Good for him to see pucks in a game situation, make sure his, his head is straight. And Gallagher, well, I don't think anything will stop him from coming out game one uh, on Thursday, so hopefully everything goes by smoothly.
1: Okay, Eric, thanks for coming on. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I actually do like the decision. I think it's a smart decision. Although, you know, if someone gets hurt, you can only imagine all of the I told you so's that are going to come out of this. But I I think it's a smart play. All right, Eric, you've been following the Canadians all year. They started great. Then they kind of lurched their way in. To me, it was very concerning for them how long it took them to clinch a playoff spot. What do you think?
5: I think they were in straight survival mode. You know, this situation, and it was funny because the other day, Brendan Gallagher did his first media availability for a while, and he said, you know, I'm not sure enough people have talked about what we've been through. You know, we've done nothing but talk about what they've been through. I think everyone took their situation with a bit of a grain of salt, at least the people writing on the team. You know, nobody was all over them for losing, what was it, 14 of the last 21 games, uh, given the situation. They have played 25 games in 44 nights. Uh, a lot of it without Gallagher, without Price, without Tatara, without Sherratt, you know, go down the list. to know they most important players uh, and the players and what we're hearing from them because we're not around them enough is that everyone really stuck together and that they feel as though they've been through adversity and come through on the other side of it. And And I think it really was pure survival mode now. I wanted to see if there was going to be another portion of the schedule that looked like the first 10 games. Unfortunately, we never got there. And I think that the thing that really resonates with me now as I look back on this entire season is before it all started and everyone was extremely excited, I sat down with GM Mark Bergemay and I said, what makes you most excited about what you've seen throughout this training camp? And he said, you know, we've added this size and this physicality and this experience to our team, but we haven't sacrificed speed. And I think that statement, became less and less true throughout the season. And I think that's the biggest concern going in against this Toronto team.
0: Let's pick up on that then, because Mark Bergevin made, as you know, we've all documented and seen a number of moves, whether it was Allen or Edmondson or Anderson or Stahl. It's a, I mean, it seems as if every time we opened our laptops, Montreal was making another move. And when you make that volume of moves, you're going to want some mulligans at the end of the season. From your point of view, or maybe from Montreal's point of view as well, what worked and what didn't work?
5: Well, I think Tyler Toffoli uh, at 28 goals did pretty well, and Joel Edmondson uh, near the top of the league in plus-minus did pretty well, and Jake Allen stepping in for Carey Price and doing what he did. you know He was remarkable, and he went through a run where the Canadians couldn't score more than two goals in front of him, so he really did his job quite well. I think the Jeff Petrie extension set him up for another kind of career season, a tremendous season where for a long portion of it, he was in the Norris Trophy conversation until he slowed down a little bit and then picked it back up towards the end. On the acquisition front, you know, you look at the additions of Eric Stahl. I I thought when they made the deal for Stahl, they were adding some much needed experience to a center line that was extremely young. You look at Nick Suzuki and Jesperi Kokaniemi. They had gone through different ups and downs and Kokaniemi ended on a down and Suzuki on an up. Jake Evans is a rookie. Uh, even at 24 years old, and a little bit of experience last year. And Philip Deneau, you know, if he went down for whatever reason, they were going to be stuck with just the kids and potentially Ryan Paling coming up from the American Hockey League. Now, his season ended with surgery, so that's not an option. And Stahl, for whatever reason, hasn't been able to kick it into gear. And and I thought that he had more to give than this. And I, I was willing to look at the Buffalo situation and say it was so awful that you know here's a guy that just a couple of years ago had a remarkable season in Minnesota and if he's even half as good as that he'll be a contributor a good depth addition for the Canadians that hasn't proven to be the case although i will say that over the last few games we saw him adhering to the system decently a details kind of oriented player that is smart and puts himself in the right positions and i think he could have had some better luck around the net as he got some chances and you know he took the spot over Kokaniemi to start this series and i I know a lot of people are up in arms about that, but I still think that it's a legitimate thing. Ducharme has made a decision here, and I think he's going to be willing to lean on Kotkaniemi further down the line if he needs to, but this is Stahl's job to lose, and the other one was John Merrill, and we all know the, the confusion around the the deadline moves with Marilyn and and Mete going out the other way and then being stuck on the salary cap. But this is a guy that was supposed to be a steady, reliable defensive defenseman. No one was vaunting him for his offensive skills. And he has been containing plays rather than shutting them down. And, and he's wearing a minus 12 in his games with the Canadians as a result of that. So some of the things worked really well. I forgot to mention Josh Anderson. He's, he had a really good season, did everything that everyone expected of him. But now it's time to see what the real value is as we move forward.
1: What's at stake here?
5: You know, this team, if they go out with a whimper to Toronto, which a lot of people around the country expect, uh, what are we going to say about them? Because we all thought that they were a team that was built for the playoffs. I kind of look at them a lot like the Dallas Stars last year where they just needed to get through the regular season and who knew that it would be as tumultuous as it was going to be. I thought they would be a lot better after watching their first 10 games. I think the whole country was swept up in that. You know What's at stake is that they have to go out and prove they're the team people think they can be because I look at them and I look inside their room and know their players and know a lot of them over several years. They've got a great room of guys and guys with tremendous experience who have been through the battles and been through the wars and should be able to elevate their games at this time of year. You look up and down their lineup and pick out the names. You say to yourself, these are guys that tend to step it up at this time of year. If they don't do that, it's all in question. And if you're talking about Mark Bergemay, you know, here's a guy who's been on the job for nine years, the results are not indicative of of someone who is worthy of getting a five-year contract extension, if that's what's on the line, but I think the expectations were that they would make the playoffs, they met them, albeit in a, in a way that I don't think most people in the organization expected, and I think really the decision is going to be in his hands at the end of the day. Is he going to want to continue if the Canadians don't step up and play the way he believes they can? I really do believe that I think it will be his decision to make, and I do wonder which way he's going to go with it if that happens. But I, I think that the Canadians are going to show up and play, and this is going to be a real series against Toronto.
1: So you think he's got an extension already?
5: I think it's been percolating for some time that that has been in his hands. I know everyone is probably looking at it like, well, what happened at the deadline with the the roster management and all that? Uh I think people look at the results of the last nine years and wonder why that would be the case, but I think you also have to look at May's tenure in two segments. He was given a reset in 2018, and he has done a great job of stocking up the roster with their prospects and the moves that he's made and the trades that he's made. And look, if you go back to the summer or the off season and look at those moves that were made, I think everyone, yourselves probably included, looked at them and said, wow, like this is great work that Mark Bergevin has done. He's really set them up to be a much better team than the one that finished last season coming off a really positive experience in the bubble.
0: If the Montreal Canadiens beat the Toronto Maple Leafs in the opening round here, who on that roster are we talking about the most?
5: I think we're going to be talking a lot about Nick Suzuki if that happens. I think naturally you're going to be talking about Carey Price. He's going to have to be at his best against this offensive team in toronto but i shouldn't say just offensive because i watched the leafs this year and felt that this team has progressed in a lot of different ways from their young guys finally maturing and realizing the way you need to play to win uh, and the guys that came in around them to make them realize that and and play that way and we saw them shutting down games and there was some real real evolution in their play and i think Kerry price is just going to have to be right at the top of his game, Shea Weber too. You know, it's you want to pick one or two guys, Jeff, but honestly, the Canadians are not built like the Leafs. They are built like a team that everyone has to step up and everyone has to play that team in-your-face style of game for them to be successful. So I think at the end of it, you can pick out a few of the key guys, and Suzuki, the way he stepped up in last year's playoffs and the season that he just had is obviously one you'd circle, and Price is one you'd circle, and Weber's one you'd circle. Jeff Petrie could be essential for them, obviously, and Josh Anderson is a guy who he's got to wreak havoc on that Maple Leafs defense and make them feel it. Guys like Jake Muzzin, Rasmus Sandian, and Morgan Riley, those guys are going to have to hear Josh Anderson coming and be worried about it to the point where if it gets to seven games or it gets late into the series, they're looking behind them and hesitating to go get that buck.
1: How effective do you think Weber can and will be?
5: It's a great question because we ultimately don't know the severity of his injury. We know that it was severe enough to keep him out, but he played with it for a couple of weeks. And, you know, at this point it's not a secret. He's been wearing a brace on his thumb. You know, what I had heard is that he tore something in there and, That's why you hear guys like Ben Sherrod and Brendan Gallagher saying he's the toughest guy that they've ever seen and he's the ultimate warrior. And I think a lot of Montreal fans look at Shea Weber and say, well, if he was playing as hurt, why don't you just shut him down? And that just totally ignores the culture that is so pervasive in this game and what that does in terms of inspiration when a team is facing the situation Montreal was facing with their schedule and all the guys out. uh, That if this guy was willing to go battle with what he was dealing with and play and never complain about it, never miss a practice or a skate or a game that I'm going to do it too. And so I would never put anything past Shea Weber. I thought last year in the bubble, I don't know what people's evaluation was. I thought he was an absolute monster. He lives for these situations. And I would expect that if he's playing, which Dominic Ducharme says he's extremely confident he'll be there come game one, he'll be at the height of his abilities.
0: Give us a, um as we conclude here, Eric, give us a sense of what this series means in Montreal right now in, uh, in Toronto. Listen, these two teams were one series away from facing each other in 1993. Uh, The last time they faced off was a a sweep by the Montreal Canadians in 1979. Just a, a fantastic team. What, how is this resonating in Montreal right now?
5: You know They don't feel the same way about the Maple Leafs as they do the Bruins or even the Senators to a degree. And I think you'd Hmm. say the same thing about Toronto and and their fans and those rivalries. The difference is within the cities themselves and the rivalry between the cities, Montreal, Toronto, the national spotlight, the way people view our coverage of both teams uh, and they feel that it's so slanted towards Toronto. That's just a thing that's always going to exist. No matter how many flowers you throw Montreal's way, they're always going to think you see it as – as toronto 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 and uh, that is more of a rivalry than what we've seen on the ice in my lifetime and it's i remember saying at the beginning of the season on twitter like uh you know this should reignite the rivalry and bring it to a place where it hasn't been for decades and people are like did you not watch last year i'm like listen if your idea of a rivalry is max domey calling uh kapanen an idiot for throwing his stick uh, at Jeff Petrie for for a penalty shot, then you have no idea what an actual rivalry is supposed to be. And thank goodness they're playing in the playoffs. I think it's great for them. I think it's great for us. I think it's great for both cities. And I think with the way things are set up in these two teams in the division and the directions both of them are going in with the future uh, being bright in both organizations, this could be the first of many that we see over the next few years. And uh, I'm all for it. I just wish it had happened in the second round. You know, I'm a big believer that, that things are, much better for the league and for the teams involved if Toronto and Montreal are both successful, and I would have loved to have seen this come in the second round, because the first round is already so ramped up, and it's so exciting, and that second round, you tend to get just that slight lull, and that wouldn't be there with these two teams playing, and perhaps we'd have bought ourselves enough time that potentially some fans could be in the building. I think that's maybe stretching it a bit, Mm. but... It is the dream, and I hope we get there soon because we're seeing what the effect is in the United States as these playoff games get started. And I know the players are looking at this with a bittersweet kind of mentality that, man, I wish we could experience this the way it should be experienced. So hopefully we will over the next few years, but I think this series is gonna be awesome.
0: Hey man, you know, if there's one that you look at and you say you want a full building, it's this one. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for stopping by. really appreciate it.
5: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: All right, for and that's Eric Engels of, uh, of Sportsnet. We thank him for stopping by the podcast as we thank all of you for listening today.
1: Can I just say this? Yes. It is depressing and disappointing that we can't have fans from Montreal, Toronto. It's the worst one. One of my buddies says to me, and he's a big Leaf fan, he said, you know the Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup, right? Because we can't have a parade. <laughs>
0: Listen, I remember uh, 93. I was like, easy cowboy. I I remember 1993, my sister was graduating university. She went to Bishop's and my buddy George and I were in Montreal, downtown Montreal for game six, LA, Toronto. And we ended up at a bar called Cheers watching it. And there were a number of players and jacques Demers from the habs in there all cheering wildly for the los angeles kings and I remember saying to myself why would you not want to face toronto like there's a number i think patrick might have been there i think Wa might have been one of them anyway there's a, there a whole bunch of them all cheering wildly for the los angeles kings and thinking to myself why would you not want the leafs if you're that confident in yourself isn't that the team you want to beat not the Los Angeles Kings, but I'm with you. Like, that series is screaming, like screaming for each for packed houses. And they would be. It would be wild. Taking Us Out, a track produced by Wes Marskel and Jason Kaus of the Darcy's, mixed by Hugh Mackey. Now, I say this because not much is known about the actual artist, Billy, who along with the production team delivers a killer-esque blast of Americana-tinged arena rock with rattlesnake-esque tambourine and Heartland rock pianos. I just made that up off the top of my head, can't you tell? With his latest single, here's Billy and the Devil with Even If It Kills Me on 31 Thoughts, the podcast.
2: Even if it kills me, I'm gonna find a way out of here Even if it kills me in my faith
0: Swept hills, Arizona plains. I worship at the altar of a parlor game. This burden weighs a ton.